0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to New Hope. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of First Kings, chapter 17. We are continuing our series this morning, Kingdom Promise. And the premise of the series is that actually we're concluding it. This is the last week of it, because next week is Advent. Um, the, the premise of the series is that um, uh, as Christians we are to operate not according to the kingdom right in front of us, but according to the kingdom that is promised to us. And of course, the funny thing is that as we're operating according to the kingdom promised to us, that has a direct effect on how we operate within the kingdom in front of us, which is uh, a fun way to think of it. And I wonder this morning, I- I'm thinking about, uh, Mary, I think, mentioned a few times in the, in the worship time, um, this concept of preparation. Um, are, were you, were you a good test taker in, in school? Where like I know that like there were some people who would say, you know, I'm, I'm I'm really a smart student, I'm really a clever person, but I'm just not a good test taker. Um, I wasn't a good test taker, but it was it had nothing to do with me not being, you know, me being a smart student and not being a test taker. I was a bad test taker because I was a bad student, uh, especially in elementary school, middle school, high school. I I was the 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 C student. We, like, did the bare minimum in order to keep the powers at bay, you know, uh, the powers to be at bay. Um, but, but unfortunately, there were far too many times when I would, like, go into a class um, and, you know, I was, had no idea what to expect. I got the backpack on and I sit down and uh, you hear the teacher, you know, kind of come up and say, uh, class, um, I want to make sure that we give you the entire class period uh, for the test. Uh, So please, the only thing you need on your desk is a number two pencil. And this was the first I'm hearing of this test that we're supposed to be having today. And I look over at the person next to me and go, That was today. You know, that happened far too much for me when I was in in school. The thing about it was, though, that um, I learned my lesson. And in college, the second time I went to college... The first time was a disaster. The second time I went to college, um, I actually learned that, you know what, if I apply myself and I actually do the work, not only am I better at taking the test, not only um, do I actually learn things, but I actually I ended up looking forward to those test days because they ended up being the shortest class periods because I got in, I knew the material, I put it down on the piece of paper, and then I'd get to leave like a half an hour early. So I actually ended up looking forward to that. Um, but it was interesting to me because I, I, I think I did learn the lesson in that, and I actually ended up getting pretty good grades in, in, in college and in, um, in grad school. But um, it, it, was, it was a lesson that I learned about my past. I, I realized that the reason why I took education seriously later on is um, because I had tasted the fruit of not taking it seriously in my youth. So the point of the sermon today is that God is always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. God is always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. To put it another way, God has every intention on using your past experiences and your current circumstances to play into his future plans. Back in Genesis, when Joseph Joseph was facing his brothers and the violent trauma that they put him through, Um, his brothers fell down before him and, and, and worried that Joseph would retaliate. And Joseph just responded with these words, he said, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, and it gets a little weedy here, for, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Yeah, a little complicated language. God is always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. you got to be careful, though, because God hasn't declared that the sin, darkness, and evil that occur in our world are... Um, in the, in the kingdom in front of us, the sin that occurs in the kingdom in front of us, he hasn't declared that it, it only appears evil. It actually is evil. But the thing about our God is that our God is in the business of redemption. Do you know what redemption means? I mean, spiritually, we use the word to, to mean that God has acted to save us from, from sin and error and evil. But you know, redemption, it's, it's also a, an economic term. You know, redeem this coupon for whatever. The action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or the clearing of debt. So here's the hard truth, friends. Your sin cost God something. My sin cost God something. God is a holy God, and he Demands holiness not just from us, he desires holiness for us, because God loves us far too much for the alternative. So he redeemed us, he saved us by putting on flesh and going to the cross to die for your sins and mine, in order that we might live a holy life in harmony with him. You see, God is always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. The book of John, Jesus, he tells his disciples, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. He said this, and Thomas, one of his disciples, said, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going. How can we even know the way? And Jesus looked at him and said, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You might know that, that Christianity was first referred to as the way. Christians or Jesus followers in the earliest days were simply followers of the way. The way is the way of hope, and the, way, uh, and the people of the way are those who trust that He is in all of this. They are to be people who live now as if they know how the story is going to end. So the question to each of us this morning is, are we going to acknowledge His presence and trust in His redemption and live into the Jesus way of life, or are we going to instead opt for selfish desire and the way of darkness? You might want to yell at me, and you might want to say, It's not that simple, Joe. Life's complicated. And you'd be right. The way of Jesus cannot be reduced to clever memes or even proof texts that jab little digs at at those who think differently than we do. The way of Jesus is the way of lifelong discipleship, it's the way of hard, scary stuff. Eugene Peterson, he called it a long obedience in the same direction. So in closing out of this series, Kingdom Promise, I'd like for us to have a look at a story of a man who was asked to live out the way of God in the midst of some really hard, scary stuff. He's not a perfect man, but he's an example of, for us of, of what it means to trust and obey even when it seems that the whole world is going in another direction. This morning, I want us to consider the story of Elijah, who was a prophet during the reign of King Ahab, Ahab, who who reigned um, after the nation of Israel was split uh, soon after Solomon died. Ahab reigned actually a long time removed from the time of Solomon, but but apparently one thing hadn't changed. What hadn't changed is Israel's people, especially Israel's leaders, commonly mixing worship and devotion uh, to God, with worship and devotion to false idols, other gods of the, of the Mediterranean world. King Ahab had a wife, and his wife was named Jezebel. And Jezebel was a worshiper of Baal, a name that was commonly associated with storm and fertility god. Uh, as you know, if, you, if you've studied um, polytheism, uh, it gets confusing. Keeping track of who's who in the pantheon of deities um, this of uh, who may or may not have uh, power over a particular ancient situation, you know, it, it gets kind of confusing. If you ever watch the like, Clash of the Titans or something like that, you know, for, for the Hebrews, the worship of the one true God Yahweh was a powerful part. It was a central part of their identity. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Worship Him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Central to their worldview was that God was one and that all of their, of, of their heart, soul, and strength should be pointed in His direction, the direction of the one, true, almighty, and sovereign God. Ahab, though, king, lost that. And he started to follow after the false gods of Jezebel. Enter Elijah the prophet. I was watching a, um, a lecture this, this, this week from the... The great R.C. Sproul, uh, he did a lecture on, the, the, uh, 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 on Elijah. Sproul said that the prophets in the Bible, prophets in general, they're not just foretellers, meaning they don't simply just predict the future. They do that, in fact, at times, but they're also foretellers, he said. They anticipate the future while living in the present. They tell it like it is. And they speak truth to power even at personal risk to themselves. They're often lonely, despised, persecuted people who are uniquely called and gifted by God for the specific task past, past of being the conscience of God's people. It's hard to think about biblical prophets without also thinking, for, for me, without also thinking of, of men and, and women who have served in this role over the centuries. John Adams, Frederick Douglass, John Brown, Martin Luther King, Bob Dylan, even Mother Teresa. People who used their words and actions that were counter to the prevailing voices of the day in order to speak truth at a time when few wanted to hear it. Elijah goes in to King Ahab. And he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be due nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah prophesies a drought that will come upon the land in order to wake Israel up from their failure to be the people that God had called them to be. Now evidently, God prepared uh, needed to prepare Elijah for what was to come. He needed to prepare Elijah for the test. And he says, okay, it's time to go. Get out of here. I want you to go hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. There you can drink from the brook, and I've even commanded the raven's to feed you there. So you might get this image in your head of, like, Lamar Jackson and and, and Justin Tucker showing up with, like, wings and pizza, but no, 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 it was actually birds. Um, Your provisions aren't going to always look like what you want, Elijah. But I know what you need. So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went and he lived by this brook, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and they brought him bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Until... After a while, sitting by that brook, he watched it just dry up more and more and more because there was no more rain in the land. Imagine being Elijah, alone by this brook, watching each day as the water just gets lower and lower until it just dries up completely. And he, more than anyone else, would have been in on God's plan here. But you can imagine he was still sitting there thinking, that water's getting pretty low. So one day, God tells Elijah, all right, I want you to get up. <clears throat> and I want you to go to the village of Zarephath uh, in the north. And, and you're going to meet a widow there. And uh, she's going to feed you. I've, I've commanded her to feed you. So he goes and he gets to the city, and he gets to the city gate. And indeed, there, in fact, is, is a widow who's kind of gathering sticks right around the city gate. And he, and he called to her and he says, ma'am, Uh, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Now, in the middle of a drought, this is a bold request to be sure. Uh, Of course, it's also that he's a stranger. Um, But the woman agrees. And she turns to to get him a drink. Okay, I mean, you know, I don't have much, but hospitality and all that, I'll get you a drink. And as she's walking away, Elijah calls out, oh, bring on some bread as well. Let's Let's have some lunch. And this is all she can take. The woman says, sir, you got me. Um, As the Lord your God lives, I've got nothing baked, Uh, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. The reason why I was out here gathering up sticks uh, was in order to make a fire so that I could prepare a last meal for my son and me. I'm going to make this last meal. And to be honest with you, sir, I I don't have a plan after that. I guess we're going to die. You know, it's been said that God rarely shows up early, but he never shows up late. Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go go do what you said. But but first, make me a little cake and and bring it to me. And afterwards, we'll make something for yourself and, and for your son. And I'll tell you what our God, the God of Israel, told me that the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord again sends rain upon this earth. Maybe your mind just flashed forward to the feeding of the 5,000. The widow went, and, and she did as Elijah said, and, and he, along with the widow and her son, they, they ate for many days. And the flour and the oil, they, it just kept coming. In time, though, the widow's son became severely ill. At one point, the illness even took a turn for the worse, and the boy stopped breathing. And so the widow... <laughs> Who had just had her life saved, turns to Elijah and says, What are you have against me, O oh man of God? You've given me a bit more life just to remind me of my sin, and now you're caused the death of my son? Sometimes when we don't have anyone to blame, we just start throwing accusations against the wall to see what'll stick. Maybe it's Elijah, maybe it's God, maybe it's my own sin, maybe it's my own failings as a mother. There's a desperation in this woman's words. This woman didn't know where else to turn. So she just turned in as many different directions as possible. Maybe she represented Israel at the time. God's people. Unsure of herself and unsure of her place in the world. And now it appears that all hope is lost. But Elijah said, give me your son. And he took the child from his mother's arms and he carried him upstairs to his room. And he closed the door and he cries. He cries and he cries and he cries. He cried out to God, Oh Lord, my God, have you brought calamity upon this woman by killing her son? And he stretched himself out over the child three times. He just fell fell on the child and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. God rarely shows up early, but he never shows up late. If the child had died, he would have been in the arms of his heavenly father, but this child came back to life in order to show Elijah and to show all of Israel that God is a God of resurrection. We're told that God heard Elijah's cry And the child began to breathe again. He was revived. Elijah took the child and brought him downstairs and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know. Now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth and it's truth. So years go by. God had prepared Elijah for what was to come. Maybe now he's ready for the test. He had showed him his provision. He had shown him his timing. He had shown him the power of compassion. He had showed him the hardness of the human heart. And he had showed him that even death itself was no match for who the the Almighty God is. He had showed him that what was lost or what seemed to have been lost can be found. And now, finally, God once again speaks to Elijah. Rise up. Go see the king. It's time for the rain to return. And so Elijah sets out to see King Ahab. And Ahab, uh, he sees Elijah, and, and he says to him, Is that you, troubler of Israel? And Elijah says, I'm the troubler. I, I think you got your signals singles, singles crossed, king. You're the one who has troubled all of us because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you followed after false gods like Baal. And I tell you what, here's what I want you to do. I want you, Elijah says, I want you to gather as many people in Israel, as many people as possible, and I want you to, to gather them at, at, at Mount Carmel, you know, off of I-83. And I want you to, to bring the 450 prophets of Baal and, and the four hundred. 400 prophets of of Asherah, the other god, who who eat at Jezebel's table. I want you to muster all your forces because we're going to have a showdown. It's time that you learned who the one true God is. It's time you learned who your God is. Ahab took the bait and he gathered a bunch of people, including the prophets, and, and together they all gathered at Mount Carmel. Elijah steps up in front of the crowd and he says, Crowd, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if if Baal is God, by all means, follow him. You guys got to quit it, Elijah says. You guys got to quit it with the, the religious buffet. If those gods that you've been after truly are real, you should probably follow after them wholeheartedly. Worship of Yahweh would only get in the way of that because he's going to demand exclusive allegiance. The thing is, the lesson that we've been learning since back in the garden is that all these other gods, they're actually just the worship of yourself. It's worship of your own understanding or your own pleasure or your own fear, all in the names of idols like Baal or Asherah or greed or lust or alcohol, or drugs, or envy, or pornography, or racism, or pride, or xenophobia, or hatred. Those idols are all just manifestations of the darkness, the darkest parts of your heart. Elijah says, if, if those gods of the self are truly where your hope lies, well, you better follow after them with everything you've got because Yahweh isn't interested in a cooperative effort. In the words of Gandalf, There is only one Lord, and he does not share power. People said nothing. They were speechless. So Eliza spoke up. Didn't even make a dent, did I? I guess I'm here alone. But you know, Baal's prophets number 450. So I'll tell you what. Bring two bulls. Let the prophets of Baal choose one bull for themselves and I want them to cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but but don't put any fire to it. I'm going to prepare another bull and I'm going to do the same. And so you call upon the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire will call him the true God. So the crowd agrees. And the Baal prophets took the bull that was given to them and they, they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. And there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the author that they had made, and around nothing was happening. And around noon, Elijah started getting a little cocky. And he goes, You know what? Uh, Baal prophets, you, you probably need to speak a little louder. He, he's God, after all, very busy. Maybe he's off meditating. Maybe, maybe he's just taking a leak. Maybe he's on vacation today. Maybe today's his day off. Maybe he's just asleep, and, and he has to be. Woken up, so you better cry loud. The prophets of Baal cried as loud as they could. They even cut themselves, was their custom, with, with swords and lances, and until everybody was just covered in mud and it was just this mess. And as midday passed, they raved and raved and raved, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Because here's the thing about false gods: they're good in a pinch. They're good as a band-aid they're good for temporary pleasure the human heart is very good at lying to itself and finding temporary pleasure in very temporary things but they but when when it's time to come to bat when it when it really matters it'll be a swing and a miss every time so now Elijah had enough and all the people came near to him and he put it all back together he starts putting the the pile back together he repaired the altar of the Lord that that had been destroyed by the Baal prophets. And Elijah, he picked up, he picked up 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel, in a, in a sign of, I'm going to repair Israel in this action. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he, he, Then he made this trench around the altar. And he set up the wood, and he cut up the bull, and, and he said, I want you to fill four jars with water. I mean, water? Where did they get water? probably this water was the, was the last water they had, and I want you to pour it over everything. Yeah, just keep going, just keep pouring it. And then he said, I want you to do it again, and, and they poured it on a second time, and keep doing it again, they poured water on it a third time. I want you to drench this thing with water. And the water ran around the altar so much that it filled up that trench. The people must have just stood there with gaping mouths, watching as he wastes all this precious water on seemingly nothing. But the moment of the offering, Elijah steps up and says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are in the business of turning their hearts back to you. Well, at that moment, fire from God fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the, and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they just fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized him, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he killed every last one of them. That's not an easy detail when you're reading the story. Evidently, what was going on here was very, very serious. And then Elijah looked at the king, and he said to Ahab, King, get up, and go get something to eat, and drink. Perhaps in that moment, the the king thought to himself, well, you know, I'm happy that you're turning people's hearts back to God, Elijah, but you, you might have forgotten we're in the middle of a drought, and you just used the last of our water for your magic trick. But Elijah just leaned in and whispered to the king, I hear the sound of a rushing of rain. And so Ahab said, okay, and he started to leave, and Elijah went up to the top of the Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and he put his face, face between his knees and he said to the servant there, um, go up now, look, look out towards the sea. And the servant ran over and looked out at the sea and then he ran back to Elijah and said, um, there's, there's nothing. You're not, no, 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 there, there, there's probably something, there's, there's, probably, the, there's probably great clouds or, or something like that. I want you to go back to, to it again go look again. And he did, and he didn't see anything, and he, and he came back to Elijah. Oh, I'm sorry, there's nothing. So Elijah said, no, 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 go, go back, look again. And this ended up happening seven times, and like the seven days of creation, the number seven, it's a number of completion, right? Because God rarely shows up early, but he never shows up late. And after the seventh time, the servant comes back and says to Elijah, well, I tell you what, this time I, I, I see a, a little cloud And it's like a little man's hand rising up from the sea. It's something, at least, Elijah. And Elijah looked at him and said, you're going to want to go tell the king to hurry up down the mountain because he's not going to want to get caught in the rain. And as the servant started walking towards the king, you know, because it wasn't raining at the time, but as the servant started walking towards the king, he began to start walking faster and faster and faster because that little hand cloud soon grew larger and larger and larger. And while the heavens grew black with cloud before long, and winds started to blow, and the next thing everyone knew, they were standing in the middle of a torrential downpour. And the story ends with the funniest little detail. As the king rides as fast and fast as he could on his chariot back towards Jezebel, we're told that the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and the king looks out of his chariot and sees Elijah running faster than even his chariot. Exit, stage left. And that's our series, Kingdom Promise. The story, it continues, of course. This isn't the end. The people continue to persecute the prophets, they continue to persecute Elijah, the people continue to worship false gods, and they continue to have genuinely terrific moments where they are reminded of God's faithfulness. Idolatry, though, it it leads to exile, and exile leads to oppression, but that's our series for now. Because next week is Advent, but for now. I want to leave you with some good news and some bad news. Both of which will hopefully prepare us for the the Christmas season and the closing of this unfortunate year. The good news is, well, it's the good news. It's the truth that all of this stuff about David and Solomon and Elijah, all of it was pointing towards something better. It's pointing towards the forever kingdom that was promised to King David. The kingdom that was announced by Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. The good news is that we don't have to wait one more minute to live life in that kingdom because it's offered to us freely. Right now, at this moment, for all that call Jesus Lord. Jesus invites us to live a life of faith that is defined by love for God and, and love for others, that's what this all comes down to. The good news is that there is nothing, not one thing that you need to get right in your own life by your own power in order to accept God's free gift of grace today. Nothing that you can do in order to earn God's love because you already have it. He loves you exactly as you are, even though He has no intention of leaving you as you are, because he desires for you holiness and the abundance of life. That's the good news. The bad news is that this story, these stories of David and Solomon and Elijah and Ahab and all of the rest, these may be 3,000-year-old stories, but these stories also point towards us. Because it's not as if we've put idolatry, rebellion, selfishness, and sin behind us. We still continue to worship the wrong things. And we still attempt to climb up on a throne that is far too big for us. The hope is that the redemption of these stories... The hope is that the redemption of these stories is that they would prepare us for the realization that we need to put our selfish, false gods down and follow the only one worth following. I mean, I want you to think for a moment, wherever you are, I want you to think for a moment about, about the darkness, about the idolatry, about the, the evil, the sin that, that has, has been a part of your past. I mean, imagine it just for a moment as a, as a singular object in, in your line of sight. I don't know exactly what that is for you, but on the other hand, of course I do. The corruption of sex, power, and money, false idols of vice, broken relationships, and plain old bad choices. The same stuff that we've been struggling, that human beings have been struggling with for for well over 3,000 years. I'm here this morning to tell you that those gods, that that darkness, that while it may provide temporarily refreshing drinks of water, it doesn't control the rain you'll imagine that darkness, that brokenness in your life, I want you to remember something in closing. I want you to remember something that you should write down. I want you to remember something that you should put it on your refrigerator and you should repeat it as often as you possibly can maybe every morning when you wake up for the next month as you lead into Christmas. I want you to remember that in Christ I am not defined by my past or my present I am defined by His future. In Christ we are not defined by our past or our present no matter what happened back there God wants to redeem it and he wants to define us he wants our identity to be in him and the consummation of all things that is to come the truth that Jesus saw the darkness of the truth is that Jesus saw the darkness of this world far better than any of us could And He looked it square in the eye and He came to earth. He put on flesh. He died on a cross so that you and I could live. Will we still make bad choices? Yeah. But I believe that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the difference. This was never about our own righteousness, our own perfection following after God the, the perfect way, this was always about looking to Him as Lord. And when we fall, we confess it. We, we admit it. We say, Lord, I fell again, but I'm turning to You. Cleanse my heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit in, within me. That, that's what they lost. That's what so often we lose sight of. We assume that, that we have to have everything put together and everything has to be perfect. And, and we have to completely... Um, uh, be this, this, this perfect Christian person. That, that's not what God wants. God wants authenticity. He wants your, your heart, and He wants to be on the throne of your life. That's what God wants from you today. Pray with me. Dear Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness to Your people over the centuries. From the beginning of time until now, You have repeatedly been uh, faithful. You have been a part of it. You have been the, 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 the hero of this story from the start. Lord, help us to find our identity in your story. Help us to, to see the redemption of our stories when they're placed in the midst of your grand narrative of creation, to new creation. Lord, we ask that... Um, that you would be with us as we as we wrestle through this, as we as we deal with these things that are not simple, they're complicated. Life is complicated, but but what is the truth is that you desire to be in it with us. You don't want us to be um, alone. You want us to have each other, you want us to have you in relationship, in community. Lord, as we enter into this Advent season, center our hearts, O oh Lord. Help us to see that the That your son coming on earth was the beginning of a radical revolution of love. Something that that changed the world forever because he announced that your kingdom is here. It's in our midst. It's today and we are welcomed into it today. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ I pray. Amen. Amen.